It began as a story of power politics in the land of Israel. You're not going to believe this, but there was a conflict between the ethnic groups that lived side by side in the land of Palestine. This was, by the biblical timeline, nearly 3,000 years ago. Long history of conflict, indeed. Leaders rose and fell. International alliances were formed and tested. There were land grabs and controversial settlements, and at the heart was a religious conflict between the heathens and the chosen ones. In this case, the worshipers of Baal and the followers of Yahweh. At the heart of the conflict was the prophet Elijah. We're not sure about Elijah's background, but in the stories, he is one of the elite. He has access to kings, he becomes internationally famous with followers and a strong title, and he has great power. He has this connection, direct connection, it seems, with his God, Yahweh, who does great things, miraculous things on his behalf. Elijah the prophet, legendary man of faith even in his own time, now revered by billions of followers of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And the first thing that we learn about this guy is that he got hungry. Elijah is introduced in 1 Kings chapter 17, informing King Ahab of Israel that Yahweh was going to bring about a drought on the land. God was blackmailing the king for worshiping the wrong God. Until King Ahab converted from the follow of Baal to the worship of Yahweh, there would be no rain in all of Israel. That was Elijah's prophecy. So he delivered this message to Ahab and then went off to a ravine where Yahweh told him to hide. Yahweh told Elijah that the ravine would have a small stream that he could drink from. And ravens somehow brought him bread and meat twice a day. But eventually the stream dried up and God directed Elijah to a village, a village beyond the borders of Israel, where he met a woman out gathering sticks to make a fire. She's not given a name in the story. She's known only as the widow of Zarephath. So I will call her Zara. Elijah asked Zara to bring him a drink. And stranger or not, drought or not, the strong customs of hospitality dictated that Zara must meet the needs of this stranger as a guest. As she turned to comply, Elijah pushed further. While you're at it, I'm hungry. Bring me some bread too. That was probably within his rights to ask as a guest, but this was a step too far for Zara. I swear on the life of your God, I have no bread to give. I have only a little handful of flour left, only a little oil. Now I'm gathering sticks to make a fire, to bake one last tiny loaf for my son, and then we're going to die. That was all Zara had to offer. She valued the hospitality norms and traditions of her people. She recognized Elijah as a man of God, someone important. She may or may not have realized what was happening at the level of kings and high priests and international relations. But all of that was happening up here. And in that moment, Zara was living down here. None of that other stuff mattered. Not because she was basic or simple or stupid, but because she was human. She was starving. She had a responsibility to her son. They were trying to survive, and that was the only thing that mattered. And that was true for Elijah as well. 
he talked with kings and held international influence. His faith was strong enough to do miracles, but he still had to eat. He still sought safety from his enemies. He spent lots of time up here. He still lived down here, just like Zara and her son, just like all of us. Remember church potlucks? We would gather at the church for worship. During the service, there would be a few people in the kitchen keeping the slow cookers going, heating up dishes in the oven. We would be in here in the sanctuary doing our worship thing, the emotional and spiritual and communal highs of praying together, singing together. There would be some guy at the front using big words and talking about ancient stories and deep spiritual truths. And we would all feel sophisticated and knowledgeable, maybe even enlightened. But then you would notice the smells from the kitchen wafting across the room and your attention would fail, your stomachs would start to rumble, and you would give up caring about whatever the preacher was talking about. Just stop talking already, we want to eat. We live down here. Can't wait to get back to those days. We visit these higher levels of culture and consciousness occasionally, but we live down here. Everyone does. In the language of spiral dynamics, we are all beige. As you've probably heard by now, our summer worship series is called Faith of Many Colors, the spirituality of spiral dynamics. And beige is the first space on the spiral. As defined in Wikipedia, spiral dynamics is a model of the evolutionary development of individuals, organizations, and societies. Individuals, organizations, and societies. In other words, spiral dynamics is a model of how everyone and everything grows and develops. Small project. Let's start on the level of individual development. I will be the guinea pig on the spiral treadmill. I was born at a very young age, and at the beginning I was all instinct and basic motor functions. Eating, sleeping, pooping, figuring out how to get the adults to help me with all of that stuff, working out who I could trust to keep me safe and warm, all of that. Staying alive, staying alive, oh, 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 staying alive. That's beige. There can be a whole lot more going on with all of these spaces. I'm going super simple here to give us a more general idea of the colors on the spiral. So I began life as beige, and after a while I started to figure out that there was this whole other world beyond me, a world full of wonder that I could interact with. It was amazing and magical quite frankly, terrifying. There was so much beyond my control, for better and for worse. Life just kind of poured over me and around me, and I'm just there all wide eyes and open mouths. But I had a family where I belonged. There was safety in numbers. And if I played my cards right, they would even give me ice cream and candy sometimes. That's purple, the place of wonder and tribal belonging. As I continued to grow, before long I figured out that there were some things I could control. I got tall enough to sneak candy off the kitchen counters when my mom wasn't looking. And I could do chores on the farm to prove my worth to the family. Eventually they even paid me for the work that I did and I could spend that money on whatever I wanted, usually baseball cards with a stale piece of gum in each pack. That is red, the space of the warrior. We were a pacifist family, so I wasn't exactly encouraged to be a warrior, but I did learn 
to use what power I had to control the world around me. I could torment my brother. He was a lot bigger and stronger than me, but I was clever. I was faster than he was, so I could make him really angry and then just run away. There was a lot of red in my childhood. But I really found myself when I went to school. There were neat lines to stand in, all these rules to follow, a whole organization devoted to teaching me my place in the world and how things worked. Two plus two equals four. What goes up must come down. Do your homework and earn the praise of the teacher. Stay in line and avoid the wrath of the principal. And as a Christian school, my school taught the capital T truth from beginning to end. Everything was solid and trustworthy. There was great security in that. And purpose. By high school, I made the basketball team. Even though I wasn't the best athlete and didn't score most of the points, I learned how to be a good teammate, how to rebound and pass and play defense. Because what mattered more than my individual success was the success of the team. That is blue. Teamwork, clear lines of responsibility, a shared identity and sacrifice in service of the unity and success of the group. Then after high school, I went to university. And while I was pretty insecure in leaving my blue high school community, what I loved about university was all the questions that didn't have answers. I mostly studied American history and world religions, and there was so much information that I had never considered before. A whole lot of unknowns, but that was okay because even the unknown was part of the process of finding out. We didn't know yet, but we could find out. And the journey to discovery itself promised to make things better through greater understanding, invention, technology, all this useful stuff. I mean, other people were studying the useful stuff. I was just studying history, but I was in that same space. And that's orange, research, data, best practices, all rational and effective and productive. After university, I moved to Vancouver, my first real taste of life in the big city. And it turned out that I wasn't nearly as smart as my university degree told me I was. Living in Canada in a truly international city, I quickly realized that my knowledge of history was so one-sided and incomplete. I met people who practiced the world religions that I had studied, and their lived experiences were so much more than I thought. I became friends with people who blew my stereotypes out of the water. And over time, I came to realize that my way of seeing the world was just one of many, many perspectives. My friends saw the world very differently than I did. Who was I to say that I was right and they were wrong? Maybe the world was big enough for all of us, for all of our stories, for all of us to be the people that God made us to be in our own ways. That's green, inclusive, multi-voiced, justice and awareness and compassion for all. So that's the basic spiral for individual growth. For me, it happens to line up quite neatly with the geography of my life. As my world got bigger, my worldview expanded to make space for all the new places and people and ideas that I was experiencing. The discovery of new spaces doesn't cut me off from the previous ones. I can still go back and access those as well. Often, for better and for worse, I automatically default to different colors depending on the situation. When I go back to my hometown, 
back to the house I grew up in, that adolescent red and purple and blue comes out so fast. But my understanding of myself in relation to the world has forever changed from the spaces I grew up in. My center of gravity has shifted. That's the basic theory of spiral dynamics for individuals, that most of us have a center of gravity within one or perhaps a combination of two of these spaces. We can access the others and, and we do go to them unconsciously sometimes, but we have one or two of these that are, have the strongest impact on how we see the world. We stand in one of these color zones to look out. You don't have to listen to me talk for very long to, to see that I operate a whole lot out of a green space these days. I try to include everybody in decision-making. I value cooperation and compassion. I try to pay extra attention to people whose stories are very different from my own. I love dialogue and conversation and discussions. At the same time, I'm a preacher in a very blue profession. I work for and benefit from the institutions of the church. I believe in capital T truth. I'm up here preaching about sacrifice, giving myself for the greater good. I try to ground my teachings in the traditions of the past, especially of the Bible. If you call yourself a Christian, if, if that's a title that you accept, organized religion is a very blue space, even when it makes you squirm a little. So I'm very green and very blue at the same time, and quite often those two bump up against each other within me. It's really interesting to believe in capital T truth and the value of everyone else's truth at the same time. Throw a little bit of beige into the mix, the fact that my livelihood revolves around talking about truth, suddenly there's a whole lot of pressure to figure out how to balance it all. Contradictions, compulsions, hypocrisy abound, let me tell you. And that's one of the big values of spiral dynamics. It offers a structure to help understand and sort out those kind of internal struggles and complications. Including spirituality. Faith has looked quite different for me at each of these spaces. And this model helps me to understand and appreciate those differences. So that's the spiral at the individual personal level. Claire Graves, the psychologist who began the work of spiral dynamics back in the 1970s, recognized that a lot of these same patterns of development also happen in societies. He and those who continue his work stretch out the spiral over 100,000 years of human history. And further, spiral dynamics proffers that organizations also operate in the spaces on the spiral. Families, churches, cities, businesses, political parties, nations all tend to have a center of gravity in one or two colors. And over time, the dominant color of organizations can shift and develop as well. So again, this is a hugely ambitious model. I first learned about it from a book called A Brief History of Everything by Ken Wilber. Unfortunately, today we don't have time for even a brief history of everything. So we can look forward to more about how this applies to organizations and societies in the coming weeks. And if you want to work ahead, in the written version of the sermon, I will link to some of the podcasts and online resources um, that I've learned about Spiral Dynamics from, and you can dive into those if you choose to. For now, let's bring it back to beige, the basic space of survival needs and instincts. As I said, we all live out of the beige space. It's the common denominator. In the story of Elijah and Zara, the drought impacted everyone. 
King Ahab and his royal court were brought to the same place of dependence as the lowly widow across the border. Their resources to meet their needs were vastly different, but the needs themselves, the base level motivation was the same for all of them. Including the man of faith, Elijah is like the number two guy in the prophet hall of fame right after Moses. Great acts of power were attributed to him because of his faith. The guy just spent months living in a ravine being personally fed by ravens. In the next part of the story, he's about to raise Zara's son from the dead. His resurrection power, as much faith as you can get. And yet Elijah still got hungry and thirsty. His faith didn't remove him from his body. His body still needed attention and care. His faith didn't elevate him to a different level of existence. What made him a great prophet was not replacing his physicality with spirituality, but holding the two together in service to God. That's a story that's told over and over again in the Bible. The unification, the inseparability of the physical and the spiritual. From the beginning in the first creation story, as soon as humans are given bodies, God declares them imago dei, the image of God. That divine image was not achieved by climbing up the spiral or whatever ideas of progress and maturity and sanctification that we might have in mind. Those journeys had not even begun and already God said, these humans are my own, they are good. As the psalmist put it, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, already at the level of beige. Even the purity level religion of Israel was not about getting rid of or becoming less physical. Old Testament faith with all its laws and sacrifices and rituals were about bringing together the physical with the spiritual in ways that brought out the, bo the best in both. Christian faith as followers of God incarnate is an affirmation of human bodies. Our physical needs and instincts are real and important. Jesus sought to heal this divide between body and soul. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Beige is the foundation for all the other spaces on the spiral. And faith seeks to honor that, to honor the human bodies on which all the rest is built. That said, beige is not the only thing that matters. Life is not merely survival. That's what's so compelling about this story of Zara and Elijah. She had only enough for one last desperate meal for herself and her son. Every instinct she had told her to cling to those resources. They were her last hope. And Elijah asked her to trust in something beyond her needs and instincts. The thing about beige is that it grounds us but it can also control us. All those other spaces can be twisted into serving beige, the baseline of survival. We've seen a lot of that during the pandemic. Our other centers of gravity have been co-opted by the compulsion to survive. Science will save us. My church, my God will save us. Equality will save us. Carefully following government health orders will save us. All of those claims, I mean, some of those things can make us safer, but all of those claims are generally false in terms of promising to save our bodies, to help us survive. None of those things save us for long. We will not survive, not in this way. 
And more, this compulsion for survival actually steals the vitality and creativity and power from these other spaces. These other spaces don't exist only to serve the beige. They have their own purposes, their own gifts. If beige dominates us, the fullness of human individuals and society cannot flourish. Even faith becomes one-dimensional, just cheap fire insurance. The antidote to that is generosity. Yes, my body needs food, shelter, safety, sex, clothing, clean water. Yes, it feels like those are in short supply, that if I don't guard what I have, it will run out. It even feels like I'm down to one last cup of flour, one last teaspoon of oil for me and my family, one last roll of toilet paper. But as Zara dared to trust, there's often more than I thought there was. I don't see that well. There's often more than I thought. There's often enough to share with a stranger as well. When we live like that, fully appreciating our physicality, but balancing that through generosity and trust, that is the path to flourishing. That's the path that opens up all of the colors of faith up and down the spiral. In the words of Jesus, do not worry about your livelihood. What you are to eat or drink or use for clothing isn't life more than food. Isn't the body more than just clothes? Stop worrying then over questions such as what are we to eat or what are we to drink or what are we to wear? Those without faith are always running after these things. God knows everything you need. Seek first God's reign and God's justice and all these things will be given to you besides. So that's my introduction to spiral dynamics. I will have a lot more to say about this over the summer and I will welcome your questions and comments along the way. I hope that you have time to celebrate the beige space today with a good meal, some time moving your body, some excellent rest. Thank you for listening. <laughs>